0: What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzek. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Michael Sierra Arevalo, assistant professor in the Rutgers School of Criminal Justice, about his research on policing and violence prevention. This is episode 21 on tenure tricks.
1: So I think the big thing, um, horizon for me right now is the book project. Uh, so I have recently signed uh, an advanced contract with Columbia University Press and I'm slated to produce a book, working title, uh, Peril on Patrol, Death, Danger, and U.S. Policing. And that's based off of dissertation research uh, from 2014 and some of the research continued into the, be- the first few years uh, as faculty. So to around the very end of twenty eighteen, beginning two thousand nineteen. Uh, um in that book is trying to understand how did we get to a place where policing is synonymous with danger. Mm-hmm. Um and how did officer how do officers today learn to treat their work as morally dangerous and what does that mean for their behavior mm-hmm. and perhaps most importantly what is the implication of that kind of police practice for the public and for reifying inequalities over time.
0: So what, um, what drew you to this research?
1: So I went to graduate school because I was going to be a gang scholar. That was my plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to do ethnography, comparative ethnography of gangs and mm-hmm. look at how gangs of different races or ethnicities thought about honor and loyalty and family. And that was, that was the, that was the plan. Um, and it turns out that as with most people, uh, my plan when I first went to graduate school ended up shifting drastically. <laughs> um, and I originally actually got attached to something called Project Longevity, which is a focused deterrence initiative in New Haven, Connecticut.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and that was to reduce uh, group-involved uh, street violence, gun violence specifically. And I thought, okay, this will be the entree into gang research. Um, that will be how I might be able to potentially meet people who are actively involved in gang activity, and that will be how I can meet people and get in. Um, little did I know, it was actually how I met police officers for the first time. I mm-hmm. uh, was in that context because um, I had been, you know, I had I had interactions with police officers as a as a younger person. I had been stopped a few times. Uh, But that was the first time that I saw them doing their work in a more informal setting. So sitting around a table, mapping where groups were, Um, but this was still early. This is 2012. And then in 2014, Ferguson happened, uh, and Michael Brown was killed. Mm -hmm. And I think, like a lot of people, uh, I was really curious about these issues that were suddenly being brought to light. I didn't grow up in a hyper-police neighborhood, so I did not grow up thinking about police brutality. I did not grow up thinking about the risk of being shot or killed by a police officer. And suddenly I was trying to read about these things. And that's when I was like, what do you mean we don't know how many people are shot by police every year? What do you mean we don't actually have a good estimate of how many police officers there are in the country? And that's when I was like, okay, no, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to study. I want to understand how police think, why they do what they do today. Because all the classic ethnographies, with a very few exceptions in the past 15 years, are from 1960 to 1980. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was, you know, the data's not great on police names. I thought, you know what, I'm going to get my own data and I'm going to get in the car. And that's kind of how I got here, I think.
0: So have you had um, much pushback from law enforcement that you've worked with on this project at all?
1: Uh, There's been some. uh, Not from the departments themselves, so... That's something I should talk to my students about, grad mm-hmm. students in particular, is about the idea of access. So mm-hmm. I think some people like to think about access as a binary. You have access where you don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, particularly with police departments, but I suspect with other organizations that have multiple levels, you know, getting someone to sign the dotted line that allows you to be there is one thing. Getting someone to talk to you once you're there is a whole different thing. Um, so I had assistant chiefs or a chief or a lieutenant or a captain sign the dotted line that got me in the, or my random understanding, my letter of agreement for IRB purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, but every time I got in a car or I got into a lineup room, I had to convince the people in that room, even if for a little bit to talk to me, mm-hmm. um, to explain to them, I'm not going to use your names. I'm not going to reveal even the department name cause that's part of my IRB. Uh, I need to, I need your help. I need to understand. I need, I need you to help me understand.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and some people still wouldn't talk to me. So that that was just true. Some people just still clearly boilerplate answers. Didn't want to talk to me. Yeah. But I think a lot of them surprisingly, um, had never experienced somebody from my world, from the Academy,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, actually giving them the time of day or asking them questions about their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a lot I multiple times it was thank you for doing this. Yeah. Thank you for like coming out here and informing your own opinion. That was always the framing was that I was informing my own opinion. And I was obviously I had my own motives and my own reason for being there. But I think a lot of them were pleasantly surprised to have somebody that was asking them questions and letting them answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I've gotten more pushback from police that I didn't observe who have like read my work uh, or who have under, who hear that I am a researcher and they are immediately on guard. Um, mm-hmm. less so than the officers that I've actually spoken to or actually met or actually spent time with.
0: Okay, so they're they're on guard because they're they're immediately cautious of you or, or wary of you. Right, if I'm understanding yeah, it correctly.
1: This this is this is like a new project. Um mm-hmm. this this is where I came up most recently. It's a new project. Um and without getting too in the weeds on that, it was um I'm, I'm looking at this intersection of basically people that produce technology for police. Mm-hmm. Um, but, they, they, but that also sell that kind of stuff to the public.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so it's like the tactical community, a mixture of tactical equipment and emergency preparedness. Um, but I went to a seminar and one of the guys teaching the seminar is an active duty police officer. Mm-hmm. And I emailed him beforehand to ask, could I do an interview with you please? Mm-hmm. Um, and when I met him in person, he's like, "Yeah, just shoot me an email. We'll definitely do that." Yeah. Um, weeks go by. I emailed him, no response. I see him again at a new at a new seminar, mm-hmm. and I say, "Hey, man, I you know I sent you an email. I don't know if that was the right email. I just want to double check with you." And he's like, "Oh, I uh I got your email, and I found your website. And I got to be honest with you, man, I think that you're pretty anti police. I don't think that I really want to talk with you." <laughs> and I tried to, I tried to ask him like, "So what is it about it that I that was anti police?" Uh-huh. He's like, well, you know, just you just don't want like, to talk about any of the good things that we do. It seems all really, really critical. And you don't you don't uh, tell us about any of the the good job that we're doing. And right now, we just really need that. And I think that you're not being very fair. Um, and I, I try to disarm. I try to – you know, like I work sometimes with police officers on reducing violence. And, like nothing was getting through. It was a very yeah. – N- unwinnable stance um that was the most recent time where i was like yeah someone just did not want to talk to me because they just did not trust my motives or who i was or anything
0: yeah so very similar to doing like other types of ethnographic research right like i'm thinking totally. about this like the parallel with with stuff on gangs you know yeah. kids who are are just who've never encountered like a researcher before um who are thrilled to talk about their lives and and finally somebody cares about them. Like there's that parallel. It sounds like.
1: Yeah. To some degree, there's something there about people that have been unheard or that perceive themselves as being unheard are Mm -hmm. really, really stoked to have someone ask them about themselves and their lives. I think the most obvious difference of course is like gang involved. Youth have basically no power. Yeah. Whereas police officers have tremendous
0: power. power. Yep. Yeah.
1: Uh, And that's, that is obviously a big difference, and it's something that I had to learn to navigate. I should have – I mean, I was i was—I was in graduate school, and I think – I mean, most people, when they go in the field – I'll speak for myself uh, – I was a little bit naive about the things that I would have to encounter and have to navigate. Mm-hmm. The power was a real one. Um, there was an instinct to treat them as powerless, but they're not mm-hmm. powerless. Um, in many ways, they're very, very powerful actors that you're interacting with.
0: So could you talk a little bit more about that? Um, I'm curious just to to hear more about how you learned to navigate those relationships and, and deal with that that power, which I imagine would be pretty like in your face sometimes.
1: Yeah. So I think that in some ways, I was not going to be the subject of their power, mm-hmm. right? So the department knew that I was there. The rank and file officers knew that the command staff knew that I was there. Mm-hmm. And so there weren't my interaction with their power was more recognizing that I was going around and spending time with people that had power, even if I wasn't going to be the target of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I learned very quickly, for example, that they were very willing to not tell me things that they didn't want to. I wasn't going to convince them to tell me things. Um, I learned very quickly that, one way to get a conversation to end prematurely was to bring up race and to bring up racial inequality and to bring up things like profiling. It makes them very cagey. Um, It makes them very skeptical about why you're in the car. If you begin to ask those kinds of questions, particularly early, Mm -hmm. I would try to get to like, you know, at the end of a 10 hour shift, you know, eight hours in, I've built some rapport and now I might pivot, to some questions that are close to that yeah. or they might bring up something like, so they would often test me. So with things like, so like a uh, black lives matter. How do you feel about that whole thing? Mm-hmm. And that was, and that was for them to feel me out. Yeah. Um, and if that was what it would be, I would just try and pivot it away from me as quickly as possible mm-hmm. and bring it back to them. So what do you think about it? Yeah. And so I'd let them open that door and then I would walk through it as opposed mm-hmm. to officer Johnson. So like, what is your, uh, what is your stance on the recent report showing in a call? Like that's that I tried that in early. Again, I messed things up like any field worker. Mm-hmm. I tried that early and it shut things down. Uh, um, but that was a learning process. Yeah. Of learning how you navigate these conversations with people that have every right. And I think are actually very used mm-hmm. to not talking to people if they don't want to, because they recognize their rights. They're legal enforcers. They are legal agents. And they know that they don't need to tell me anything if they don't want to.
0: Yeah. That's that's surprising that the the race question would cause them to to shut down like that. I mean, at least just anecdotally based on my experience here, that's been an opportunity for for guys to really kind of um, sometimes soapbox a little bit, um, yeah. get very defensive, and and really kind of <laughs> what's the word I'm looking for, kind of not like go into a tirade, but but really kind of defend themselves in the job and and sort of go into like a a kind of a colorblind racist kind of kind of thing where, like, um, you know, our department's not racist because we have a black officer kind of a thing. Mm. You know, like like language like that, things like that. Like, there's no way we – like, this doesn't apply to us. This might be something that happens in other departments, but never here. It would never happen here. Um, so why do you think that – why do you think that was? Like, why did that – was it just, like, general uncomfortability that people have with talking about race, or do you think it was something job-specific, or –
1: So I will say that 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 is the flip side to the shutting down is this exact kind of behavior, Mm -hmm. right? And so I heard multiple times and I heard like in fine grain detail, if I choose to stop this car, I can't see the race of the person driving it or I'm stopping this person not because they're black. It's because they're wearing a hoodie and it's hot outside. And that's suspicious. There's any number of ways to justify the behavior, Mm -hmm. which is the stopping of disproportionately black or brown people um and this is across cities right one on the east coast one on the west one in on the southwest and that was mostly like a latino question There was very few black people in that town yeah um so it's a question of stopping uh stopping mexican americans or mm-hmm. native people um and so there was ways in which it was basically trying to school me on why you might think that it's racist but let me explain to you actually why this is not at all racist in Uh the language of it might happen in other departments, but I've never seen it. I heard that in every department I went to. Yeah. Um, And I only went to three. So it's it's three out of 18,000. Yeah. But it's, it's three departments in vastly different parts of the country and the rhetoric and the justifications and the logics are pretty indistinguishable from place to place. Yeah. Uh And the second piece is, I'm a brown person asking these questions mm-hmm. and I think that that tinges the interaction with a sort of tension that may not exist. If it's a white person asking a white person about the issue, Yeah, because you might expect there to be some kind of, you know, cutting some slack if it's just two white folks talking to each other about the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that that kind of assumed benefit of the doubt will necessarily exist. If a black or brown person is asking a white officer about that problem or about the issue, mm-hmm. um, and I think that makes people more uncomfortable. People are uncomfortable talking about race they're probably more uncomfortable talking about race with someone who is a different race than them,
0: yeah, yeah it um it kind of just reminds me of how universities handle like sexual assault on on their campuses right by saying that you know this and, is a problem that happens at other schools this doesn't happen here while they're you know maybe <laughs> pushing stuff under the rug or. Um, making making cases go away, right? Like, like yeah. sort of like abuse of institutional power mm. or maybe not abuse, but misuse, I guess, kind of walking that line. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of your violence prevention and reduction work.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so that is, that originally began at, in 2012 um, and that was, with my advisors, uh, Andrew Papachristos, who's now at Northwestern, and Tracy Mears in the law school, they were cooperating with a national network for safe communities out of John Jay. That's David Kennedy's violence reduction shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were implementing focused deterrence, um, which was uh, born in – boston in the early 1990s uh-huh. uh, the boston miracle of the like the google bowl big event massive drop in violence as a result of this new this new way of focusing on the people that are actually most likely to commit or to be victims of gun violence uh-huh. um and so that project began in 2012 after new haven's homicides peaked in 2011 uh it basically reached the levels that they had in the early 1990s right uh-huh. so while most cities in the country were Continuing their nosedive in violence, New Haven ticked up uh, throughout the early 2000s until they reached, again, early 1990s levels Mm -hmm. of homicide. And so the chief at the time, uh, Dean Esserman, uh, was basically brought in um, by the mayor to try and fix this issue. And he keyed in on focus deterrence and that was work again i was i was a i was not even officially a grad student when i began going to meetings this was like the summer before my first year of graduate school oh wow and that was going to implementation meetings and listening to community stakeholders you know who were you know some people wanted to do root causes a local mm-hmm. businessman was really set on this is not how you solve problems we need jobs we don't need police officers here um, other people were saying well this would be easier if we had Fewer were dead bodies people would be more able to get jobs and hold jobs and so i was exposed to that tension really early and yeah. that tension never left and it's part of what i think keeps me in the work um it's very real
0: that had to have been such a mind-blowing experience like before you're even officially a grad student sitting in that room with those people
1: oh yeah and i was my job was to be quiet and to take notes
0: oh for right? sure so,
1: <laughs> you know the, the police chief is on this side of the room and Tracy's on my side. You know, she's you know a preeminent legal scholar. Um, and then there is community stakeholders, the principal of the adult high school, a local community leader and businessman. And they're not talking about these things abstractly. They're talking about things where there are lives at stake in yeah. communities that are, I think, to say in crisis is too strong a term. But there are people that care deeply about the well-being of their neighbors and of their community. And it's from different perspectives and they actually want to solve the same problem, Mm -hmm. but there is an indelible tension between Mm -hmm. how they want to go about doing it. Deep distrust of the police on the part of the black community. And so suddenly these things that I had been reading about as an undergraduate and that I, that I cared about because I thought that they were problems, they got very real, very fast. Mm -hmm. And once that work kind of began, I, I still do this, this kind of, um, this kind of work um, mm-hmm. when I can, so I'm no longer working at, with the implementation of longevity, mm-hmm. but I'm helping, for example, evaluate um, New Yorkers Against Gun Violence is doing a school based violence production, uh, gun use reduction program. Right. So these are just issues that once I saw that this was how research could be used, mm-hmm. that you could use a skill set to actually try and make some real change happen, even at the micro level even for a couple dozen people mm-hmm. that's more than i think just writing articles has the ability for me to do and maybe that's maybe that's myopic but just being able to affect that kind of conversation at the ground it meant a lot to me early and I, I it's why i've continued to try and do it
0: yeah i don't think that there's anything wrong with that philosophy i mean that's that's exactly what brought me into teaching <laughs> you know well, so you are you're preaching to the converted um so there are people listening to this who who don't know what focused deterrence is. So I was I was hoping sure. you could give like a, a quick like explanation of what that is.
1: Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, that's that that's on me. That's my bad. That's oh my no bad. worries. Uh, so the people will probably know what deterrence is broadly, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea is that if we um, raise the penalty effectively, uh, that people won't do stuff. Yep. Um, if you punish them, they won't do it again. And the way that's been implemented in policing specifically has actually been through very broad policing. And so we we think about sweeps and we think about uh, order maintenance, basically net widening is how we might describe that. It's the opposite of targeted. Um, And it turns out that, A, it's a massive waste of resources, and, B, it really pisses off people in communities that don't want you there arresting people for drinking on their porch. They want you there addressing violence. Yeah. Um, and so focused deterrence uh, came about as a way to specific it was born of of the um, of the violence of the 1990s in the late 1980s to address gun violence. And the gist was, we have been trying to do all this other stuff to address gun violence, and it doesn't seem to be working in some places very well
2: mm-hmm.
1: Maybe there's a new way of attacking the problem
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's like what's the first thing we can do? It sounds simple now, but it was... Why don't we sit down and actually find out who the victims are, who the perpetrators are, how old are they, how many people are there really, and let's get a handle on the actual problem. And it turns out that in most places, gun violence is driven by a handful of people. We're not talking thousands. Mm -hmm. In some places, it's not even hundreds. It's like dozens of people in major cities Mm -hmm. that drive the lion's share of violence. And so focused deterrence, its goal, is to identify those who are committing, and by extension are those most likely to be victims of gun violence, mm-hmm. and then bringing them into what's called a call-in, where you bring in law enforcement, social service providers and community members, and you just talk to them and you tell them, the violence has to stop. If you choose not to stop it, law enforcement is here, and that's their job, and they're going to do their job. Mm-hmm. But if you do stop and we want you to stop, we need you to stop. Mm-hmm. There are also per- social service providers here. Mm-hmm. We can help you get your driver's license. We can help you get services. We can help you do these things. And the community is here so that you understand that this is not just people from the outside doing this. The community also wants this to stop. and We need it to stop. Um, and it turns out that when you pull back the curtain – and you talk to, it's mostly young men, mm-hmm. and tell them, like, this is the stakes. This is what will happen if you don't stop, and it must stop. And there's actually a way for you to get out, potentially. It's not mm-hmm. a surefire way, and it's hard. It will be hard. And you have moral voices, many of them who are formerly in the life, saying, I was there once. Mm-hmm. I was in the seat that you're in now, and I wish that they would have told me ahead of time mm-hmm. or given me a shot to get out. And it turns out that they actually will. They put the guns down. And those mm-hmm. that don't, then, then they are arrested the way they would have been arrested otherwise mm-hmm. and those 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 levers continue to be pulled so to speak um, but this is a drastic shift away from just flooding neighborhoods with cops looking to arrest your way out of the problem right
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah that sounds very similar to a program that i got to see um, my university's um been trying to build relationships with schools in panama um okay. so i got to see a, a program Um, At the time, I'm not sure if it's still there because the country just had an election, and so the people running the program were a little bit worried about um, how a change in administration might affect, you know, like the typical political stuff. Um, But they would would identify kids who were in gangs and um, give them what sounds like a a very similar kind of um, uh, call-in and providing them, with, like, all the social services and lots of drug and alcohol counseling and just general mental health counseling and then job training. And um, the kids all had a... They got, I believe it was $50 a week in um, medical vouchers, like, coupons and um, food stamps. Yeah. And their job placement, I think over a few years, they had placed over a 1,000 kids. Um, so, like, really... Wow. It, was, it was really cool. It also, so what wouldn't work here is that it had a, a heavy religious component to it. And so the kids had, they were required to go to this daily um, sort of prayer service. And so the couple of times I was down there, I got to see two of those services. And I met with kids on two different sites. And there was one barrio that I went to where, like, all the people in country were super nervous about taking us there, right? Um, because they were like three months ago, if you would have walked in here, they would have killed you on site. Holy shit. (laughs) Yeah. And so I'm like this, you know, gigantic white American in, in the barrio and just like watching the kids pass out their Bibles and they sang. um, the, the program had this, um, sort of a, a zero tolerance policy for people who quit. Right. So if you missed a meeting, um or you like whatever they would boot you and they wouldn't let you come back. And so the kids were trying to advocate with the um police chief to let in one of their let, let one of their friends back in. And he's like, "Nope. Mm-hmm. Not going to happen. He made his choice. He's not coming back." And the kids were like they were pissed about it, but um they you know kind of took it on the chin. Mm-hmm. And then uh they were organizing a soccer tournament. <laughs> and So The people running this program had had kids from different gangs from all over Panama that they had organized into, like, 30 different teams. And I remember them hanging up this... Like, they had wrote out the brackets on this big piece of paper, and they were taping it up on the wall. It was crazy. Like, I remember asking the guy, like, are you sure... The soccer tournament's a good idea, and they were. He was like sure. ad- admittedly nervous about it because you had kids who had been on on like rival gangs who are now sort of randomly slotted onto the same team, but playing against people that they used to be in in the life with, and they were going to do it. Um, it was really yeah, really there's, a, really there's cool. a program in Bermuda. Um, they use rugby, mm-hmm. um,
1: but it's something very similar. Yeah. So it's 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 basically like a it's a Bermudian version of what, you know, the midnight basketball was yeah. at one point yeah. uh, for inner city communities. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're using rugby as a means to try and both build community amongst, you know, it's again, it's it's young, young men in Bermuda uh-huh. uh, that represents the overwhelming share of, of those victimized by gun violence uh-huh. uh, and that violence, um, but also trying to break down the the intergroup dynamics that drive a lot of the reciprocal shootings and a lot of the cascades of violence mm-hmm. that between groups. Um, there's been no eval that I know of, unfortunately. Um, yeah. And That's always the question, right? Like, does it work? Um,
0: so I'm, I I'm curious. So like one thing that I've encountered in the classroom a lot about teaching violence is that students tend to view victims and perpetrators as being two different populations and then Mm. once they realize like how significant and substantial the overlap is like it's kind of this for some students anyway like this eureka kind of moment and so i'm just curious like is there that misconception um like (laughs) in the real world um like, with, like, when you're doing this applied type of work, like, do people in the community that you have found, that you've worked with, um, are they aware that that overlap exists?
1: So, I preface this all by saying that most of my work in violence prevention does not bring me into a lot of interaction with, say, mothers or grandmothers or people that are living in the community that are not attached to the program itself. Okay. And so what, what the person in the community thinks that is not directly privy to the inner workings of the implementation thinks mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure. of. Okay. What it. I will say is that just generally people that I've spoken to in my life who are friends mm-hmm. or family, people that are even, uh, tangentially related through say the police department mm-hmm. and in some cases the police are, they are surprising allies in knowing that this is how it works, that there's overlap. So mm-hmm. you, don't have to, you don't have to explain to most police officers that today's shooter is tomorrow's victim and vice versa. Yeah, They know because they have arrested them and they've been to the scenes. Yeah, They know this. Mm-hmm. I think the average person, um, particularly in a U.S. culture that is very punitive, mm-hmm. that likes to believe in good pe- people and bad people, mm-hmm. most people are surprised, to at the overlap um, um that they are comfortable believing that bad things happen to bad people mm-hmm. um and actually, it actually reminds me of a book um i'm gonna forget the title of it it was written by an er physician in boston um and he wrote about how he learned that in an er setting there's basically no such thing as a true victim. That if you got shot, the assumption is that you were doing something and you deserve to be shot. And no really? one believes you, even if you say that wrong place, wrong time. I think that's what it's called, wrong place, wrong time. Maybe that's what it's called. Um, but that, that's a that's a strong bit of like, yeah, wrong place, wrong time, trauma and violence in the lives of young black men uh, by John A. Rich. Um, and it, it's... It's part of what drives like that callousness on the part of ER doctors and ER nurses. Um, and that exists, I think, not just for doctors and nurses or even cynical cops, but for the average person that you are much more willing to believe that you got shot because you were doing something you weren't supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. not because you just happened to be in a car or because you were at a party or because, yeah, you were doing something and carrying a gun. But that's because like you do live in like a dangerous place yeah, um, where you might be victimized. And the complexity of it, I think, is lost most of the time.
0: That's so sad. <laughs> no, yeah. that's, it's,
1: it's, it's not an uplifting
0: story. <laughs> that's, so, that's my only reaction to, to the, the physician's story is that's just, it's kind of heartbreaking, right? Because that that itself tends to fly in the face of, like, I guess, stereotypes that we would have about medical professionals, right? That, you know, we, we've seen so many doctors on TV and movies just charging headlong into a crisis and it doesn't matter, you know, who it is or what happened to them. Like, kind of, ignoring the judgment part um so uh how do you how do you bring this stuff into the classroom
1: so i teach currently uh methods Mm -hmm. and this semester was an undergraduate policing class Mm -hmm. um next semester will be graduate policing so that's kind of my i do undergrad methods and then i do grad and undergrad policing is kind of where i live at the moment Mm um I bring in the policing stuff very obviously, I guess, right? I can talk directly in a week about police culture. We do two classes on police culture, then um, that's a lot of my own ethnographic work, mm-hmm. right? understanding how culture is built and maintained and what that means for behavior. Um, so that's direct. In um, methods, I think is where I get to do a lot more of the overlap. So that's when I. Uh, So I teach mine. My class is officially titled Criminal Justice Research Methods. Mm -hmm. I approach it much more as a social science research methods class. Mm -hmm. And so I cover sociology. I cover criminology. I cover psychology, um, lab experiments, content analysis, historical methods. And I try to give a really broad overview. And what I try to do, in particular on the weeks on um, evaluation research, Mm -hmm. um, that's when I can bring in – this is what the paper looks like at the evaluation. Let me explain to you the four years that happened before this paper got written Mm -hmm. and about what this looks like on the ground when you're trying to make this happen and how clean this paper looks is not at all indicative of how messy the real world is that actually produced this 20 page manuscript. Yeah. Um, And that's actually a lesson that I try to put all the way through is that most of you will not be researchers and that's fine. Yeah. A, the tools in here can be used if you go to, so Prudential's a big employer in in Newark, Mm -hmm. if you go to Prudential or you go to Audible or you go anywhere, Mm -hmm. you should understand that knowledge is constructed, people have incentives to produce certain kinds of knowledge, and that all data is fallible and fallible people produce fallible data. Mm -hmm. You should understand that as a baseline. Now we can run through surveys, we can run through ethnography, we can run through all those things. And I use Uh, The violence prevention stuff, I use my own ethnographic work as examples, interview work, um, just as as case points. Um, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But for a lot of them, in Newark in particular, um, for a lot of people in my classroom, interaction with police is not a hypothetical or a theoretical concept. They have been stopped. They have lived in hyper-police communities their entire lives. Mm -hmm. And so that is also an avenue in, which is that I'm not here to tell you what you already know. Let me tell you. How am I go about understanding this thing in a slightly different way? Mm-hmm. And what can we do and why should we give a shit?
0: Mm-hmm. So do you find that 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 sort of is a, a good method of disarming students who might come in ready to um, maybe not be as as objective as they should try to be? in the
1: policing class in particular. Um, um, so I think that with the methods class, is a different challenge in methods. So in yeah. methods, that's a required class. And I think a lot of students have no desire to be in a research methods class. Yeah. And that's like the baseline condition that I have to deal <laughs>
0: with. Um, I think that's a universal truth about academia. <laughs> Yeah.
1: Yeah. Methods and stats. That's a, that's a tough sell for, I think a lot of undergraduates. And I say that as someone that also was not super stoked to be in a required methods class when I was 17 or I'm sorry, when I was like 19, 20, um, I will say that in the methods class, my way of disarming is that I always try to make clear that it's really messy. You actually have to make choices. Everyone is fallible and this is applicable to your life and let me explain to you i'm not going to i'm not going to tell you like how you do focus groups if you go to be a ux researcher at google that's not my job mm-hmm. but i'm telling you that this method is applied in ways that has nothing to do with criminal justice and nothing to do with sociology and you can use this if you so choose to mm-hmm. but that's your choice Mm -hmm. And I say choice a lot in my class, right? It's like how you choose to use this. Yeah. But you can choose to be informed or not be informed. You can choose to take this on board or not take this on board, but it's a choice and you always have a choice. Yeah. With the policing class, um, that is a class where there are a lot of priors going in that are not necessarily based on empirical facts. Uh And that cuts both ways. Um, Mm -hmm. I have students who are the children of police officers who Mm -hmm. want to be police officers, And then I have students who have lost friends or family to the criminal justice system or to police brutality, and they're all in my classroom at the same time. Yeah. Uh, And I try to frame the class as not like a both sides are right kind of thing because I also don't agree. I don't – that's not my stance. Like there's one side that has much more of an onus to fix things, and it's not the side that's being brutalized. It's the side that's the part of the state, Um, (laughs) and that's my normative stance. Yeah. But my job is to say, look – you can, you can believe that the police need to change, and you can want that desperately, and you can also not hate the police. Those two things do not have to be perfect sets. Yeah. And this class is about empirical work on policing. I'm going to tell you about the empirical reality of police, and what you choose to do with that mm-hmm. is your choice, and that's your right to have your stance. But I'm not here to, I'm not here to, to spin narrative. I'm here to tell you what the research is, how we understand it. Mm-hmm. What we can say is the weakness of this work versus this work. What do we know versus not know? And we can have a discussion in this room, mm-hmm. um, but like it has to be respectful. There is no right side because I'm, t- as someone that knows a lot about this particular topic, I can tell you what I believe based on the evidence, but it's always based on the evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that just sets the tone and there are times when you got to reel them in. And that's my job as the instructor is mm-hmm. to reel them back in when we're getting far afield from the content of the class itself, mm-hmm. but also giving them space because some of them have, you know, they've had really negative interaction with the police sometimes yeah. or they're from a police family and they have their families experienced bad things just because of the nature of their parents job. Mm-hmm. Um, people assume a lot about each other. And I think that that's. Both what makes the class valuable and also the danger of that class—that's mm-hmm. uh, the risk that you run teaching something like this. At least in 2019,
0: maybe yeah. it was easier in 1990. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know. Um, so, I'm, another thing I'm I'm kind of curious about. So, um, in an episode that I recorded yesterday with um, Dr. Jessica Sieuric, we talked about objectivity and sort of the the growing realization in academia that objectivity is is a myth. Um, So Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm kind of curious about your, your stance on that. And, um, you know, how do you, how do you go about trying to teach objectivity when it, how do I want to put this? Trying to teach objectivity just generally.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and so my perspective on, on the question of objectivity Is really informed by the fact that not only do I do ethnography in which responsible ethnographers should be very conscious of how not only their presence affects their data, but like who you are changes, how you perceive what you're seeing, what you're hearing, the questions you ask. Yeah. And so that's like, that's a case study. And like, yeah, the, the idea of like the objective ethnographer, like we probably should get away from that and just admit our sins they're not really sins, but I, I call it admit your sins. Like, you're not yeah. perfect. You are in the body that you're in. That affects your data, and you should wrestle with it and understand how that changes what goes down on paper and what becomes knowledge. Yeah. On the other side, um, I try to show my students all the time. That how you write the survey question, for example, changes the information that you get from people,
2: uh-huh. the number
1: of items. Is it multiple choice or is it a true-false? Is it on a scale? Is it? Mm-hmm. And I show them that this changes the information that you get, how we choose to code this. We do a live coding exercise in class. Mm-hmm. Here's an interview transcript, an actual interview that I did.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm even going to give you the prompt. Mm-hmm. I want you to go through and find examples of this theme. Mm-hmm. And I show them, like, look at how much variation there was in this room Yeah. on the exact same theme, the exact same interviews, and look at how you guys coded this stuff differently. This is the exact same thing that happens to, quote, unquote, professional researchers. They make choices. Mm-hmm. They decide what gets to go in as this code versus this code. And all of this rests to some degree on trust. Mm-hmm. Right. Our system falls apart if there's not trust that people are trying to do work the right way. Mm-hmm. in trying to get a truth because our system of peer review is like not particularly well suited for sniffing out fraud. It's good at finding method, et cetera. But if you're actually like fabricating data, our system is not particularly well designed to find that.
0: Right. And that's obviously something that we are dealing with now, right? With oh, some of the, the, the major controversy coming out of the American society of criminology.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah. And that, that whole thing is, you know it what's what it strikes me as is that there's a real generational struggle here. I think that there are some people and I've talked with some colleagues um who are not they are not I'll call them super senior so like they're not the heads of journals
2: mm-hmm.
1: um but they're very well respected and they said yeah the 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 rate of change is staggering' so like in a decade the difference between a scholar just ten years mm-hmm. um So people that are even – people behind me, the notion of not having your stuff on Open Science Framework is abhorrent to them. Mm -hmm. Like what do you mean you're not posting your code and your data? And this is also like a field thing, right? So in other fields, this has been de rigueur for for years at this point, that you pre-register stuff, you post your data, you post your code. um, And in some ways, sociology and criminology are playing catch-up. Yeah. But those that are ahead of the pack – I think are facing resistance, not because of like, I'd, I don't think it's like an inherent, like we think it's bad to have transparency. It's just like a not understanding of the mechanism that you would have to put in place
2: mm-hmm. to
1: allow transparency to actually be the way that business gets done. Yeah. Because there is a big experiential gap there that I don't think is going to be addressed anytime soon.
0: Yeah. And we haven't exactly been in just very broadly speaking. I don't think we've been in the business of being transparent. Just, no. just in terms no, of how so. research is done, like access to research, access to that knowledge, we've been very good at hoarding all of that that information, right? And I think a new generation of scholars coming up is is sort of rocking the boat there or, or changing that structure in, in ways that I think you're right. Generationally, is <sighs> maybe upsetting for people. Totally,
1: yeah, and it's, and I, I actually, I don't, I have not spoken with enough with enough senior scholars to know what their normative or their individual stance is on the issue. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that many of them would be likely to say like, yeah, in theory, I think it's great, Mm -hmm. but they know a lot more about the intricacies, for example, of running a journal Mm -hmm. and they can see all the ways that implementing the kind of transparency that you would advocate for in like an open science framework, like, these are all the structural reasons within the journal that would actually be really hard to do
2: mm-hmm. that
1: I can't see cause I've never even done that. Yeah, And so that might very well be the case. Um, mm-hmm. and that's why, frankly <laughs> we could just talk about that openly and potentially get <laughs> to a solution. Um, but I don't think that conversation is happening really about how you change or reduce the barriers to that kind of transparency happening yeah. in part because we're getting really caught up in all of the downsides of not having the transparency as yeah. opposed to how do we get to transparency?
0: Yeah. I kind of wonder if, if like just the way that we do publishing is going to change before we've even realized it. And then we're having this conversation in another 10 years and thinking, Oh wow. So this is what happened. <laughs> this is, this is how we got to a point where we're actually transparent because somebody so, you know, some major journal, Took the, took the first step and then suddenly everybody else did it without really being maybe intentional about it. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a first mover problem. I don't know if it's a problem, right? I do, yeah. I do wonder if it's the part of a major journal, for mm. example. And we can say it's Criminology or the American Sociological Review or whatever the case might be. Yep. I don't actually know what the incentive for the journal is to do it. Um, and this is my ignorance. I mm. don't know what the incentive is for them to shift the rules of the game as an elite journal to force other people to to come along yeah, um, or what the barriers are to them making that shift. Um, but I don't know of one. I don't know of a journal in, in either of my, my, my shared disciplines that has mm. made that jump. And I don't understand yeah. really why they haven't.
0: Yeah, I don't think anybody's made the jump. The only thing that I can think of that would be an incentive to it would just be losing memberships, right? I mean, I have, I teach a four, four at a, at a small liberal arts school. I have no real reason to be a member of either ASA or ASC anymore. Um, I I think the prices are outrageous anyway, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) so if I don't have, if, if somebody like me who is nobody from nowhere now has had their faith rattled in in like this organization that's been kind of like the, the one steady ship for my career, then why would I ever re up yeah. right until they do things to, um, kind of correct themselves. Like why, why should I present at ASC anymore? You know what I mean? So I think it, I think it's kind of like a bigger, like maybe, like maybe some of the journal stuff just speaks to like bigger problems within the discipline
1: yeah yeah and i think it's something it's i think that we i think that we have rightfully gotten really wrapped up in the uh the downsides of, of criminology specifically mm-hmm. um but like the incentives that lead to these kinds of behaviors i mean these are all alleged behaviors because we don't we yeah. still don't know right <laughs> may, may never know for sure for sure yeah um But it it points to a lot of perverse incentives that exist in all facets of the academy, in any discipline. Mm -hmm. Um, Publish or perish. Paywalls. The erosion of like the erosion of tenure track faculty. Like all this is wrapped up in the same the same bundle of problems. Yeah. Um, And I do want to. I do want to say that when I said, like, what is the incentive for the journal? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I answered my own question in my head. It's like, well, the incentive is to do better science. That's actually the incentive. <laughs> that should be the incentive. Is it that should be, yeah. Work? It should be. That should be the reason why you would do it. Yeah. Um, and I think that if anything has been highlighted as a result of what's happened at Crim and what's happened in political science and other – in just places that have had similar issues is that that's actually not the motivating factor. Yeah, that this idea that we are we are of a trade or of a of, of a of a profession that values knowledge and truth above all else that has been shaken, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's been laid bare that it actually does not make the the wheel turn or the world go round.
0: Yeah, let's talk about something happier. Than, than, than <laughs>
1: We've this. gone from gang violence uh, to <laughs>
0: to this this uh, okay. premature post mortem on our discipline. <laughs> um uh so you you talked about this a little bit before some of the challenges of teaching um this stuff with with students who either have had um come from law enforcement families who have their own maybe biases and their stories that they want to tell and students who have had criminal justice contact who have those similar stories um uh, i guess very broadly i'm just interested to hear um, about maybe some myths that students bring in. It doesn't have to be related to this subject. So just, I guess, in general, myths that you've encountered from criminal justice students that um, you find yourself having to, semester after semester, <laughs> try to, to debunk.
1: So I'm sure that I'll be able to give you a better sense of semester after semester after... Because I'm I'm in my second year right now, uh-huh. so... I, I have only a handful of of semesters to pull from. Yep. What I will say is that some of the myths that I correctly anticipated, for example, mm-hmm. um, was how much control students think the state has over police. Oh yeah. So when I begin telling them things like, so I'll, I'll, I use something called Slido. It's a it's like a web based. Um, multiple choice thing for in class so that Mm -hmm. they don't they don't have to buy clickers right it's just from your phone it's free yep um and i'll ask things like which of the following is the oversight uh for all police nationally Mm -hmm. i put the fbi and the doj and it's like it's a trick question because there is no national oversight for police departments in the united states it does not exist and they're like what do you mean it doesn't (laughs) exist it doesn't (laughs) exist there is no centralized oversight Yep. I then ask, how many police officers are in this country? And I give them a bunch of numbers. And I say, uh-huh. actually, there's like a tremendous amount of variation in the estimates. Yeah. It depends on which mean by police. And our best census is a decade old. Mm-hmm. Because we just haven't gotten it done in the past 10 years. And so I think for them realizing that there is really not great information about it. And they were convinced that there is that there is tons and tons and tons of oversight, and the police yeah. are just flouting it. I was like, no, there just isn't much oversight to begin with. <laughs> um, that's a big one. Um, I talked through force law. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them have watched YouTube videos, and um, they believe that they have a sense of what their rights are. Um, and I don't mean that pejoratively, like, oh, you think you know your rights. What I mean is that they – actually believe they are protected in ways that they're not mm-hmm. and so i run them through like here's some case law some very basic case law on your vehicle
2: mm-hmm.
1: basically most of your protections vanish if you get stopped in a vehicle
2: mm-hmm.
1: you can be pulled out mm-hmm. you can be searched all of those things are legal in the context of a car stop if we assume probable cause mm-hmm. and there's like oh i thought that you couldn't search me. You couldn't. know. you are legal. All those things can legally happen to you. And so that I think is also an eye opener is, oh, all the protections I thought I had actually legally, legally, and that's the big one, legally, you, yeah. all these things can happen to you. Um, we can argue, and I tend to agree with anyone who says, like, yeah, we've eroded the Fourth Amendment way too far. Yeah, Huge oversteps. But it's empirically incorrect to say that it's illegal, incorrect. It is legal to do all these things. And that's a big eye opener for students too, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, the oversight thing is, um, and so I'm just curious, like, cause I don't, I don't know the answer to this question myself, Like, what, what is the estimate for how many law enforcement officers there are? Like what's the range?
1: So we think there's approximately the number that keeps getting cited is about 18,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the number of, you know what, you're going to have to give me one, because I'm not, I'm not going to be caught on the air making the wrong estimate. <laughs> uh, I think the last one that I saw was something like 700,000 sworn. Um, yeah, but if you look online, for example, and you go mm-hmm. to, I don't know, officer, or policeone.com, or like pol- police-centric sites, uh-huh. they'll estimate over a million sworn. Yeah. Um, so basically the variation seems to be of about a quarter million we'll get varying estimates, okay. which is a massive...
0: Yeah, 18,000 to a million. <laughs>
1: like, yeah. 18,000 departments. That one we seem to... Oh, 18,000 departments. The ...number of departments, but it's okay. like, yeah, between 600,000 and a million officers. Somewhere Still. in there is, is our estimate.
0: Yeah, um, you can basically just throw out census. a big number. What was that? You can basically just throw out a big number and <laughs> right. probably... Um, in there somewhere.
1: Yeah, The last census in 2008 of state and local law enforcement agencies... Um. And that, and this will differ from what the FBI collects every year from the UCR, for example, which is mandatory reporting.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um. But so, state and local law enforcement agencies employed 1.1 million full-time people, which mm-hmm. included 765,000 sworn. So, people with arrest powers carry a gun.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Less than hundred thousand. This was back in 2008. eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, And there's there's talk now of a massive hiring shortage, huge retirement numbers. So this is actually a good time to get an update. Yeah, um, because among law enforcement, uh, law enforcement professionals are talking about a real difficulty in filling recruitment classes, getting lots of retirements because, quote unquote, nobody wants to be a cop in this climate. Um, But we're having difficulty actually verifying much of that because we just have really bad data on employment and policing.
0: Yeah, I have I have several graduating seniors who would challenge that, who have, who have come to me to complain about how low they are on like the hiring pool in in, in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, who, who have said that like you know the, the the state police are hiring maybe I forget the number, but I'll, I'll just hypothetically say like the state police are hiring 200 officers a cycle, and I'm number 1200 on the list. Like, Interesting. We have not, it has not been my experience that there's a, <laughs> there's a dearth of, of applicants. Um, yeah. but and, that's guess, a,
1: and like, that's a really interesting empirical question. Is this affecting urban departments with better benefits and, you know, is, yeah. is that affecting states versus sheriffs versus local differently? Yeah. Uh, are there some states that are more resistant to it because they have more state funding for law enforcement capacity? Uncle.
0: Yeah. Uh, but um, all good. And it and it could be a, a matter of you know small towns that are just wiping out their police department completely. You know, okay. there's there's a place okay. here that that they voted and they they disbanded their police department and are working just with state police now.
1: How big is this town? Out of curiosity.
0: Um, I'd have to check. Let me let me look up the size here quick. Yeah, it's it's small. Um, the 2010 census had it just under 1,500 people um okay, yeah that's
2: that's that's good.
0: yeah but it was a big you know around here it was like this big news you know Laughlin's getting rid of their police department Laughlin's talking about about getting rid of law enforcement and just relying on state police and and laflin has a reputation of being more affluent of a town so but it was still like this big kind of mini controversy for a little while yeah.
1: again we have bad data and that's kind of a yep. big that's a that's a recurring theme in my classes i can tell you what data we have and how flawed it is but mm-hmm. uh we need to be very aware of, of how flawed this data is and how little we can actually say confidently at this time about much of anything
0: so when you give students that projection like those those estimated numbers of departments and, and sworn officers are they surprised like they think it's is it bigger than they expected or smaller than they expected
1: so for some, it, so it, it, the bigger or smaller can, can differ. So mm-hmm. another, another one that I ask them is, um, I say, I ask them, do you think that the number of police shootings has gone up
2: mm-hmm.
1: or down
2: mm-hmm.
1: in the past six years since person? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Again, it's a trick question because it stayed flat. Yep. Um, but you can begin to get a sense of where the class stands on their assumptions about the world. And most of them will say like, it's gone up mm-hmm. their perception that there are more shootings now than there have ever been. Um, and I say, and I understand and I, that's, and I wrap it in like, and I understand why you think that, Yeah, I understand why you think that, but this is the data mm-hmm. does not show that. Uh, and then other things like they grossly underestimate the number of arrests that happen in the U S every year. Um, and I use some of the Vera. There's a, there's a really good website that Vera puts together. um, that scrapes their arrest data And I can You can just go on the site And you can You can begin to manipulate What arrests you're showing
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, And they're off by like An order of magnitude um, It's millions of arrests Yeah um, But they, they're they not There's like Oh I guess I didn't know that um, The percentage of police interactions That result in force For example um, They think that Force is ubiquitous But that's a, one of the most Consistent findings we have Is that Force is a relatively rare phenomenon in the scope of how many interactions police have. Yeah. Um, It gets misused, and that's not the point, right? And again, this is part of the discussion. It's like, excessive force is a problem. Let's not get that twisted. But force is, empirically speaking, a relatively rare occurrence in the scope of police work. Mm -hmm. Um, And then oh when i show them like statistics on like the the probability of being arrested based on gender and race and age and Mm -hmm. i'm like yeah and i have to find the paper i'm not going to quote the specific statistic but when i show them it's like it's your baseline is you have like a 30 percent chance basically of being Mm -hmm. arrested by the time you're 28 that's the Uh baseline Uh and their eyes go wide and they're like is it like 30 i'm like yeah and if you're a black man it's like a 66% chance of being arrested at some point mm-hmm. and some people I see them nodding and that's when I know that I'm I'm getting some place with some students like yeah. that matches my experience yeah. that is okay. Yeah, fair. Yeah, and then others are shocked and that's that's when I think things can happen um, is when you get some students like, yeah, that reflects my reality and other students are their mouths drop open because they just can't believe the
0: depth the depth of the inequality that I'm you've exposed them to a reality that's just like just like bursting a bubble yeah. <laughs> right they had no like they had no ability to conceive of how much inequality the like structural inequality existed and just assumed that everything was great and now 30 percent and that's wild um so i think we're gonna wrap it up there um okay so uh thank you so much for your time
1: no thanks man this was a lot of fun thank you so much for doing this
0: hey andy wilzak again so i hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together if you did we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews five-star ratings on itunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff and more importantly This show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. So if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come online, come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at UntenuredTracks or me at heydrwil. that's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L please send me a message on one or both accounts, and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology-based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.